Soon the sun will set, and the night, in its inexorable journey across the land, will plunge the ancient house into darkness, and it will seem at times that light has been banished forever, leaving behind only terror at Collinwood. Welcome to Terror at Collinwood, the podcast dedicated to the classic gothic television series, Dark Shadows. I am your hostess, Danielle Galerter, aka Penny Dreadful, and I am super excited to have my guest here today, and you will be too, because it's none other than Mary O'Leary. Mary O'Leary is an award-winning television producer who's worked on such shows as One Life to Live, Another World, Guiding Light, Hollywood Heights, and many more. She won the Daytime Emmy Award for Outstanding Drama Series for her work on The Young and the Restless in 2012, 2013, and 2014, and General Hospital in 2004, 2007, and 2011. She also won the Outstanding Class Special Class Daytime Emmy for the Gene Cooper Tribute in 2013. She was Jonathan Frid's business partner in Clunes Associates, through which Mr. Frid performed his wonderful Reader's Theater one-man shows. Mary is the producer and director of the upcoming documentary, Dark Shadows and Beyond, the Jonathan Frid story from MPI Media Group, which will be released on October 5th. 2021. This is super exciting. Mary, thank you so much for joining me today. Danielle, thank you for inviting me. Oh my goodness. What a delight. Now everybody is excited about the Jonathan Frid documentary. So give us the lowdown on the documentary. How how are things coming? Is, is everyone uh, behind the scenes excited about this impending release? Well, it's been wonderful on the Facebook page for Jonathan Frid documentary. We've received so many fans expressing their enthusiasm. So that's just wonderful. And it is available for pre-order on Amazon for DVD and Blu-ray. And they're very pleased with how the pre-sale is going. So word of mouth is getting around. And then certainly once it is viewed, I anticipate there'll be even further word of mouth. Uh, it's been a wonderful experience for me to do a documentary for the first time, but also to honor Jonathan's legacy. Before before we really dig into the documentary here, I, I'd like to hear a little bit about you. You've been, you know, you were uh, Jonathan Fritz's business partner with Clunes Associates, but prior to that, were you a Dark Shadows fan growing up? When I was growing up, a neighbor down the street, Joanne, who was about two years older than me, told me there was a terrific show I should watch when I came home from school called Dark Shadows. When I tuned it in, it was at the Frankenstein story, Adam mm -hmm. coming to life. So at that moment, basically, Barnabas wasn't a vampire. He had the life force um, shared with Adam. But that was the beginning. I got really, really interested. And I remember when it was summertime, my mom took myself, my brother and two sisters to the beach and I didn't want to miss the show. And ABC Radio at the time carried its afternoon programming. So I took my little transistor radio with me to the beach so I could listen to the episode. <laughs> wow. Oh, that's great. 
So I, yes, I watched the show and then it ended and I went on and was very involved in a senior year. I was president of the drama club and I was working on productions after school. So I wouldn't have had time if Dark Shadows were still on at that point. And then went on to college and worked again on many productions, uh, was doing classes in both education, uh, theater arts and English. Uh, then I moved to New York City. Uh, I decided I really wanted to pursue a career as a stage manager and Broadway was my goal. So off I went to New York City, much to the surprise of my parents, <laughs> because they thought I would be a high school drama teacher. Uh, but I had other plans. And yeah. so I moved. Um, and uh, I was working in productions off of Broadway and actually also did a cable comedy show. And that was uh, my first touch into television production. And I really enjoyed it. And in as much as I was enjoying theater, uh, it was pretty tough to make a living. Mm -hmm. I did a production of a play. It was off Off-Broadway. We were so excited because it was moved to Off-Broadway, the next step up. And it opened at the beginning of the summer. Opening night, I remember, as being June 1st. And I had turned down summer stock work out of town to stay and do the play, assuming it would run all summer. Mm -hmm. I was the assistant stage manager. And the reviews came in and they were very poor. And June 6th, the play closed. And now I was in New York City without work for the summer. I then really began to focus on television and was very fortunate to get hired in the production office of the soap opera Guiding Light, which was on CBS at the time, run by Parker and Gamble Productions. And I was, it was a transition time. They basically still had electric typewriters, but it was just the beginning of computers starting to come in. It was an, a fascinating time to sort of see this whole transition. Writers who would literally type their scripts and we had messengers to get them and copy them on a huge copy machine. And so much of that changed in the uh, years that followed. But I was uh, learning about production. I had thought initially that I wanted to become a stage manager on the television show, but I began to see that many aspects of theatrical stage management are handled by the producer in daytime television. Oh. So I then started to target, I think I want to be a producer. But in the meantime, I was first production associate in the office, and then I was promoted to assistant to the producers and eventually would work my way up. But right around the time that I was going to be promoted, I would go home from the studio and reruns of Dark Shadows were on the New Jersey network. It was a period of time where Dark Shadows was popping up on a number of public television stations because they were hoping people who were watching the show, remembering it fondly, would contribute money to keep the public television stations going. So I actually started to watch Dark Shadows and it was episodes I had never even seen because as I mentioned, I came in at that Adam storyline and this really was the beginning of Barnabas coming into the show. Uh, one afternoon, they announced that they would be doing a special, um, a Dark Shadow special with Jonathan Frid. Yes. And everybody could tune in the evening if, that it was going to be on. And that was early 1985. So I watched the special and Jonathan did two performance pieces. He did Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart. 
And then he did a soliloquy from Richard III. And it was just wonderful to see him doing something other than Barnabas. And I, in the interview on the program after he did the performances, he mentioned when the question was asked, well, what are you doing now, Mr. Fritty? He said, well, I'm working on a one-man show. I've been at Dark Shadows fan conventions where he had gotten tired of just answering questions about the plot because he said even back in the day, he never really could follow the plot. He was just learning his lines for the day. And he said he decided to start reading to them. Mm-hmm. And he had put together a show called The Genesis of Evil. And the first part was roles that he felt influenced his portrayal of Barnabas. He would have excerpts from those plays, such as Macbeth, Richard III, Thomas Beckett, and Murray in the Cathedral. Mm -hmm. And then he, on the second half of Genesis of Evil, was poems and poetry written by fans that he had kept over the years. Yes, People had sent them to him and he saved them. In the interview, he talked about wanting to move his show away so it could be more for a general audience, not just a Dark Shadows audience. And in fact, he actually read a lovely prose piece by a fan that I believe ended his Genesis of Evil show. So as I was watching this, I thought, well, you know, really my heart has always been in the theater. I was very happy to have my television job at Guiding Light, but I thought, wouldn't it be fun to have a theater project on the side? So I wrote him a letter and sent it to the station, hoping he would get it. And uh, I was home after work, and I had a friend arrive from San Francisco, Laurie Baker Flynn, had come to visit me. And I told her that Dark Shadows was rerunning, and she said, sure, I had watched that when she was growing up. And just as it's about to start, the phone rang. And I went to my phone. I said, hello. And the voice said, Mary, uh, this is Jonathan Frid. I received your letter. Wow. (laughs) The timing was unbelievable. And um, he said, I really was most impressed and I would love to meet you. I said, I would like that too. And he said, I have another young man that's expressed interest in working on my one man show. So I'll invite him too. And we coordinated having a meeting. Um, I recall April 2nd. 1985. Uh, the other person was William McKinley, and he recalls it as being April 1st. But um, we um, we met that night at Jonathan's apartment, and he just basically talked about what he had been doing. And he said, I don't want to focus on one author. I'd like to do a series of authors. I'd like to create a theme, perhaps have a message. And he just we just really talked and threw around ideas. I said, well, you certainly can keep with the same style that you're doing at these fan conventions. You're standing at a podium and you're creating with your voice and your expressions wonderful characters from different pieces of literature. So he said, oh, that would be wonderful to stick with that style, to have the script in front of me because I'm terrible at memorizing. And uh, so no problem. I had taken actually in college a reader's theater class. I went to Rhode Island College. I'm from Providence, Rhode oh, Island. Oh, great. Yeah, awesome. My neck had, of the woods here in New England. Uh, New Englander. <laughs> yeah. Um, had a, yeah. So I had a terrific time in college working on productions, and Elaine Perry was my teacher for reader's theater, and I had really enjoyed that class with her. So I said, yeah, well, that's what we'll do. So William and I just began to think about stories and how they might suit what he was. He would talk about ideas that he had. And we began to formulate a show. But what began to happen, and it was that he he really got a little bit too focused on a theme, a message. 
And um, we would have rehearsals at his apartment. He asked William to invite fans to come to listen, and he wanted to hear their feedback. Mm -hmm. He would have a serious critique, and I would invite coworkers from Guiding Light to come. And um, so fans would come to his apartment, friends of mine, we'd have discussions, and he really did seriously take their feedback. And um, so that upcoming Dark Shadows Festival would have been, I believe, November of 1985. And he, at that point, he went through so many different titles. That was one of the other. Sometimes we'd have an entire session talking about titles. And he went from, as I say, he had the genesis of evil and it changed to reflections on evil. It changed to, at one point he had two boards and a passion, which really references theater. <laughs> yeah. Uh, two boards being the stage. Uh, but he, when he mentioned it, someone said, did you say two broads and a passion? Oh, and no. so <laughs> he realized that title wouldn't work. Um, so it, he did settle on reflections on evil did at the fan convention. We also did a, we rented a rehearsal space so we could have a few more people and got some feedback. And then um, I sat down with Jonathan and kind of basically reviewed and said, I think we're really getting pretty far away from what people expect your image to be. For me to market the show, we have to think about your image. Mm -hmm. And Jonathan, of course, it was always, he really enjoyed playing the role of Barnabas. But after, um, and he really said it was the media because it was, a, Barnabas was a multifaceted character, sure. but the media looked at the fangs, yes. you know, the fangs, the vampire. Yeah. And that's when, after the show went off the air, um, what he didn't expect was that people were typecasting because of that media image. So he was a little hesitant to really go towards that. But I think he got some feedback from very dear friends of his who I had the opportunity to meet and spend time with. He had a rehearsal for them. And I think they said, you know, really forget about trying to, to do a theme, focus on what people remember you as. And you have a great talent at playing evil characters. So he said to me, all right, um, we can focus on more of the spooky stuff. However, we have to have humor. It can't all be dark stories. So everything from the cask of the Amontillado by Edgar Allan Poe, and then James Thurber, Mr. Preble gets rid of his wife. So we had a full range yeah. and it became a, a series of short stories. And meanwhile, um, Jonathan had been mailed a review that appeared in a theater publication written by Nancy Kersey. And he said, well, she wrote a very good review um, from my performance at the Dark Shadows Festival, Reflections on Evil. Um, why don't we meet with her? So we met and he said he'd like to work with her as a writer uh, to help structure the show and have him have little vignettes that went between the stories that would carry from one story to the other and narrative. And she said she would work with him on that. And then actually over time, she helped me with the public uh, press releases and so on. So Nancy came in um, with Will and I, and um, we were working on this new formulation of a show called Jonathan Frid's Fools and Fiends. And Jonathan absolutely was a perfectionist. And Trying for perfection is a great goal. However, it can also be a hindrance because it can never be perfect. And I knew that I had to get a target date to get things going. So I was able to contact professors that I knew. And one was Dr. Bernard Masterson, who ran the theater department at what was then Salva Regina College. 
-hmm. It became Salve Regina University later. But he booked the very first professional premiere performance of Jonathan Fritz Fools and Fiends in the Campus Theater, Megley Theater, on October 18th, 1986. And we got a glowing review. Jonathan was thrilled. It was a great <laughs> publicity um, tool was that on cam- on the campus was the house. Yes. <laughs> that's known as Collinwood, a Seaview Terrace. Which, which is which is for sale, right? Uh, going up for sale for, uh, right now. It's uh, almost $30 million. So if you want to go and have these, Mary, uh, I'm in. <laughs> Well, you know, the, the, I, I know obviously the billionaire that would be able to buy that house, but it's also, from what I understand, in need of a lot yes, of repair. Really so we're is, talking yeah. another several millions of dollars to restore. Yes, um, yeah. It, it does have a tremendous view. The location is wonderful, but gorgeous, uh, yeah. and it is the fifth largest mansion in Newport. Um, however, I don't know. Don't get the asking price. But at that time in 1986, Seaview Terrace, Cary Mansion was being used as a boys' dormitory. Mm-hmm. I think Salve Regina College had originally started as female and then went co-ed. So it was a boys' dormitory being leased to the university. And then I believe by 99, they no longer were using it and they gave it back to the Carey family, Governor yeah. Carey's family, to, um, to take care of it. I think because even then it was starting to go into disrepair. I mean, obviously, uh, young men in college maybe weren't necessarily treating it as well as they could. Yeah. And um, so um, when we were there, um, we certainly walked uh, around it. But the performance was not there. The performance was held in the theater on the campus, uh, which now they actually have a much larger theater, um, a beautifully restored theater in Newport called the Casino Theater. So that was the beginning of of this first show. And what Jonathan sat down with me, said, well, we need to formulate our business because we had been working together with just a, I was just joy for me to be working with him. And, And he said, well, now we have to get down to brass tacks and form a company and so we said, let's become a business partnership and let's call us Clunes Associates, Associates, because there were two of us, partnership. And Clunes actually came from Jonathan's family. Jonathan's maternal grandmother was born in Scotland and the family home there was called Clunes. Mm-hmm. When the mother, his grandmother, came to Ontario, Canada, and she settled uh, in Waterdown and then married uh, Dr. McGregor. Uh, Eliza still had in, in her love of this place where she was born. So she called the big estate in Waterdown Clunes, and it actually was on the gate as you entered oh, wow. the drive. Um, Jonathan felt very connected to his maternal grandparents. Uh, every summer, actually, he and his brothers would go to Waterdown and uh, stay, and he just had fond memories of growing up there. So he wanted to keep that with him. So I love the name Clunes Associates. And that became the banner under which he toured his one-man shows. And as I say, shows plural, because after he'd been touring Fools and Fiends for a while, he created a show about Shakespeare, which again, went through a couple of titles. (laughs) And final title was Shakespeare and Odyssey. 
And then he wanted a show that was very much geared towards his comedic side. Yeah. And again, that went through a couple of different titles, but ended up being Jonathan Frid's Ridiculousness. I had the uh, opportunity to watch Jonathan perform uh, Fools and Fiends in the 90s, uh, or it was in the early 90s, I think it was 91, uh, at Brown University. And the audience was absolutely riveted. Uh, it was such an incredible performance. And it's exactly what you described. You know, it had... There were dark stories, but mixed with humorous stories as well. And um, he, he was just such a captivating storyteller. And then after the show, I remember he had a little Q&A with the, the audience. They, they stayed in the lobby and he did a Q&A and a signing. Uh, and I being, you know, as nerdy as I am, uh, I knew Jonathan Fripp was, a, you know, a Shakespearean actor. And I found these uh, soft cover illustrated Shakespeare plays. I don't remember which ones. I think I got three of them. They were really beautifully illustrated soft cover books. And my mom helped me make like this ribbon. And uh, I nervously went up to his table and uh, I gave him the books and he was, he was really delighted by that. You know, that was, I was happy that he, he liked the the gift, you know, and then I brought a picture of Barnabas for him to sign. It was one where he's um, dressed in the 1795 garb, walking outside in the snow, outside uh, the, the the house where they filmed uh, the exteriors for the old house. I handed him the picture and he said, oh, you brought this marvelous picture. <laughs> and he, he just smirked and he signed it. And he, he was he was just really delightful. The audience was thrilled to meet him. It was really fun. Jonathan well, always, after performances of his one-man show, had a Q&A with the audience and then would do autograph sessions. Mm-hmm. No matter how exhausted he was, he gave of himself to his fans. He truly yeah. appreciated that those of the original Dark Shadows fans, as well as fans who continued to follow him in his career. And he was a very generous man, uh, very thoughtful, and he appreciated a gift like that, but absolutely, mm-hmm. sincerely, he would enjoy and would appreciate. And this was around the time, I think, uh, when the 91 series was airing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was around that time. So I remember people asking questions about him, if he, if he would be involved in that in, in some way. I don't re- recall what he said at the time, but it just obviously that did, that didn't come to pass. But, I think uh, that he always felt um, happy to pass on the baton, you know, best yeah. wishes to Ben Cross and now playing the role. Mm-hmm. He may have joked about, oh, if they want me for an appearance, so pay me a million dollars, I'll be there. But he, <laughs> at that point, was very content touring his one-man shows. Yes. He loved the stage. Um, it's where he started when he was 16 years old, and it carried through his whole life. He just had a passion for live theater and that connection with the audience, mm-hmm. a sense of fulfillment you feel with a live audience, which you, you don't get with television and film, although Jonathan once told the story that when he was on set of Dark Shadows, he felt sometimes he was performing for the cameramen. They were his audience. And I think after one of his early episodes, after they had stopped, they like some of them applauded and really said that was amazing. I think what was his famous speech about Josette throwing herself off the cliff oh, yeah. that he tells to Victoria Winters and Carolyn in yeah. the uh, drawing room of the mansion. Oh yeah, that was a magnificent speech. There are several questions I want to, I want definitely want to address that that you brought up that brought to mind. Um, 
Nancy Kersey is a really great contributor to the fandom and has been for a long time. And she uh, was friends with Jonathan Furt as well. But she also, you know, sets the record straight about a lot of things. She puts out factual information about things like you mentioned, for example, the the typecasting thing like he uh, a lot of people ask me, like, oh, why didn't he go on to do, you know, become a, a big horror star? And he didn't want that. You know, he was as far as I understand, he was, he, you know, he did Seizure and he did Devil's Daughter, a couple of movies, uh, but uh, he was offered a lot of roles in that genre and potentially could have been, you know, the next Vincent Price or or Peter Cushing, etc. But he decided that was not what he wanted. Is that correct? Yes. He got a new big agent right at the end of Dark Shadows who said, mm-hmm. we're going to get you all kinds of roles. And one of the things that would happen was he would be sent out for commercials, mm-hmm. uh, for example, for toothpaste. And we would walk in and the casting people, oh, Mr. Frid, do your thing. And he said, I don't know what you mean. I don't have a thing. I'm an actor. And I did play a vampire who happened to be quite multifaceted. Mm-hmm. I don't have a thing. So that was sort of the end of the commercial career. And then movies, yes, they sent him to Los Angeles to do The Devil's Daughter. Mm-hmm. And he was excited to work with Shelley Winters, um, Linda Montgomery, who I spoke to, but did not put on camera. She's actually not in the documentary, but she, she did this, recall Jonathan fondly, although she said she didn't really know him. Um, mm-hmm primarily she was very quite busy being the lead and she had some stories about Shelley Winters. She also talked a little bit about her brother, Lee H. Montgomery, who as a child was in many, many movies. I think probably Ben, the rat movie being one of the most famous. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and he was in Dan Curtis's Burnt Offerings, mm-hmm. which had starred Karen Black, Oliver Reed, and Betty Davis, and he was the little boy in that. And so she was actually sharing some stories around that. So we had a great conversation. But um, that particular movie, a horror movie, basically. And then he got the script for Seizure, and he was very interested in the character because the lead character was a writer, and he wrote stories about Poe Nature. And in his nightmares, the characters he created came to life and were evil and violent. Um, But he saw it as an interesting psychological profile. This is not a nice guy. Um, But uh, as it was Oliver Stone's first film, um, it was shot in Quebec. Uh, They had very limited budget, very limited time. I think it was like five weeks and it was fall and Jonathan told me one time that the leaves were changing on the trees and then they're going back to shoot scenes out of order and they were having continuity problems uh, because a number of scenes were shot outside and uh, they actually stayed in the house where the movie was filmed so interior scenes were even in their bedrooms and he used to joke about that uh, they were they'd get up in the morning and he the cameras would be coming in the room he goes okay i'll stay in bed so he, he greatly enjoyed, he always talked about how much he enjoyed Christina Pickles, who played his wife, and yeah. Joe Swola, who um, was one of the guests, um, that he, Joe and he and Christina would go out to dinner and just have terrific conversations together. And uh, he, he remembers them fondly. Um, yeah. But it was a tough situation because it was, as I said, tight budget, going quickly. And in it, Jonathan felt they kind of lost a part 
of, of the focus on the care and his character, and it became more about the creatures. Um, so really people label, label it as a simple horror movie today. But if you do see it, there are some compelling scenes in it. Yeah, um, yeah. I just recently had read part of Oliver Stone's biography, mm-hmm. and he, he actually mentions very briefly Seizure and his second movie, The Hand. And he said in both those movies, he looks back and realizes the leading characters are not likable people. Mm-hmm. And he kind of thinks about where he was in life. Um, of course, he had been in Vietnam and uh, perhaps was still dealing uh, with the trauma of that. But he, he was comparing the two and um, how his, his other films, uh, the character that was leading gained much more empathy than who he created in his first two films. Right. I, I um, was going to say, I met uh, Martine Beswick uh, mm-hmm. a, a, doing a convention appearance as Penny and uh, I met her and she was very charming, really fun, fun person. Uh, and I mentioned, you know, Jonathan Fred and Caesar, she just spoke glowingly of him. She was very positive uh, comments she made and how, how delightful he was. You met Jonathan was a complete professional you know, when yeah. he came on set. Yeah, uh, he was focused. Let's let's work. Always, of course, obviously, um, as an actor, people said, oh, did he want to change the script? So, you know, he he would say, no, an actor's job is acting. Yeah. An actor shouldn't be asking to rewrite the script. That's this is uh, that's not his job. Um, So um, he always uh, pretty much anyone I had spoken to just talked about his professionalism. Mm -hmm. um, And he really wanted to really get his life for him. Getting to know his character was the most important thing. Fully understanding his character helped him with the lines. Memorization was a struggle because he had dyslexia, um, which certainly was not understood when he was young. Um, So sometimes in school he felt he was labeled lazy um, and that stayed with him for years. Um, So he really, for him, the way of working um, he had to figure out, this is the career I want. How can I make it happen? And yeah. really, really, when I know my characters, then somehow the lines will come. So he he did enjoy um, Seizure, despite the kind of crazy schedule yeah. they were on. But when he came back, he got uh, to New York. He, he was offered a third movie and clearly a horror movie. And he just really realized that he didn't want to do that. Yeah. Um, he decided to just take a break. Um, he, he had not anticipated that this character would be so strong in people's minds. He thought it would fade, but it never did. As we know, 55 years later, um, since the show debuted in 1966, it still can be seen and watched on many different platforms today. Mm-hmm. Um, and it gains new audience all the time. Um, so he never could have dreamed that. So he took a break, chose to live in Mexico for almost a year to learn the Spanish language, came back, said to the agent, you know, thanks. No, thanks. I don't want to renew my contract. So now he was a free agent. And when you're an actor, you really don't hear about jobs unless you have an agent or a manager. So he did get invited to return to Penn State University, where in 1965, he had performed a couple of shows, including Richard III. Mm-hmm. Um, this summer of 77, they were asked him to come do the royal family. So um, he went and that was his uh, stepping back on stage. Then, as I mentioned earlier, these Dark Shadows fan conventions began to happen. 
and uh, really through the, the wonderful work of two women, Marcy Robin and Kathy Resch. Yes, yeah, legendary yeah. figures in the, yes. in the dark yes, shadows. They, they started the first conventions in Los Angeles and mm-hmm. um, worked over the years um, and had, uh, they were held in not only California and New York, once in Kentucky and Texas. Uh, they were terrific organizers, worked very hard and yes, fans who really enjoyed attending all those conventions over the years and keeping Dark Shadows alive is really to their credit. Mm -hmm. Um, They had a newsletter called Shadowgram, which would tell you about the latest happenings with the cast members over the years, as well as Kathy had a fanzine uh, called The World of Dark Shadows. But again, these fanzines were, as Jonathan had mentioned, fans would write prose and poetry, and they continued through after the series, putting them in these fanzine magazines. Mm-hmm. Um, they were very, very popular. And um, so really, as I say, that um, large part of keeping the show alive has been the participation of the, the fans of these Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing I, w- I wanted to just jump real quick uh, to, to Dark Shadows. I can understand, like you mentioned, you know, uh, Jonathan uh, was... Uh, sometimes with the media, the frustration with just focusing on the vampire aspect and, and he created, you know, along with the writers, this really multifaceted character with a lot of depth. The first really fully formed backstory for a vampire that you saw on television. I mean, you saw how he went through what he went through to become who he became. And then as he continued to evolve, this was a a first, like, this is not something that uh, nowadays, I think people take that for granted. You know, they watch genre shows, we can say, but the, or speculative fiction shows that are an ongoing sort of narrative, but Dark Shadows was really the first to do that with a character like that. And I can see his frustration with them just focusing on the vampire aspect, but also another thing I picked up on too in, in interviews over the years, that still to this day kind of irks me a little too, is when the articles will say, oh, the campy classic Dark Shadows. I never thought of Dark Shadows as campy. I'm a college English professor. I tend to teach a lot of Gothic lit classes and Dark Shadows in, it embodies the Gothic in many ways. In some ways it subverts it as well, but it was never campy. It simply is reflecting those characteristics of the Gothic. And I could tell Jonathan would kind of bristle a little in some of his interviews when people would say that because it really wasn't. And I, I, I kind of wish people who would write these articles would understand that a little bit. Am I, am I off there with that or? No, you're exactly on point. Jonathan never thought of the show as camp, nor did his fellow actors. Yeah. They came in, took it very seriously as if it was Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Um, he, these actors, a number of them were from the Broadway stage, Thayer David, yeah. uh, Louis Edmonds, John Carlin. These were actors who had been on the stage and really studied their craft. And they came in and said, we're going to do the best job we can with the script. Uh, you know, certainly at times there were confusing elements, yeah. <laughs> um, but they really focused on doing the best job they could. Of course, Dan Curtis was trying to pull off something unheard of. Absolutely, yes, to also say Jonathan's role as Barbus Collins was the first sympathetic vampire. Prior to that, Bella Lugosi, the monster. But Jonathan and the writers worked together to humanize the monster. And it is what really set 
for the rest of, of the decades, the tone of what a vampire, he doesn't want to be a vampire. So Twilight, uh, Vampire Diaries, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, all of these shows have really to be grateful for the creation, as I said, Jonathan's work with the writers, to have a sympathetic, vulnerable vampire. He was cursed. He hated that he had to go after blood, but he had to survive. And because Jonathan took it very seriously, yes, years later, as people would sit and laugh at it, he did find that at times hurtful. Yeah. Um, because you have to remember, they were trying to pull off special effects that nobody did, certainly in daytime television. Television right. still was in its infancy in the 60s, it's only been around what, a dozen years. And there was never enough time nor money to really pull some of these things off fully effectively, but they kept trying. And today we can look back and yes, people will find things humorous the way that they did it. But in its time, it was amazing what they were able to pull off. There was one time probably in the late eighties in a television interview where they showed the clip of all clips. They showed the plastic bat coming in to bite Jonathan on the neck. Again, we laugh at it. You see the wires, you see how fake it is. I mean, Jonathan said he wished they just implied it rather than attempting to show it, you know, have him looking off camera and screaming and cut away probably would have held up better today, but they really wanted to show what was happening. And so when he was on the stock show and they show that scene, the host came back and the host was laughing. Yeah. Well, Jonathan said, look, we were trying to do it seriously. And, you know, this clip isn't the best one to pick. There's so many other ones. So, yes, uh, at times um, he himself would admit sometimes he, he had a he had a quick temper and his reaction to something like that was to defend that they worked incredibly hard. He called the show a dark Brigadoon. Yes. It's a wonderful old Broadway musical Brigadoon. And um, they attempted to do the absolute best they could, but things did go wrong and they couldn't stop. If someone went up on their lines, they didn't stop. If an effect didn't come off, it didn't stop. If the fire went out when it was supposed to be on, or a fire, famous story of something caught fire in the Collinwood living room, Mm-hmm. And they're actually recording the scene with Alexandra Mopias, Victoria Winters, and Jonathan as Barnabas, and they're in the foyer. Yeah. And through the crack in the door, Jonathan sort of sees movement, and you hear some sounds of the crew trying to put out with an extinguisher this small fire that had started out. And you hear noise, but they kept saying their lines, and they got through the scene. And after Jonathan thought for sure they would call cut. <laughs> Because they thought, there's a fire. I want to get out of here. Um, But no, they did not stop. Actors were told, life or death, do not stop. Keep going. So all their mistakes were kept on the tape. And I think it's important to look at it through the the lens of that time and how they were doing that. I mean, they were, it was live to tape. If they stopped, it, it was very difficult to edit, especially in the earlier years of the show, the first yeah. maybe three and a half or so years of the show. It was it, as Nick Bessink, who was the video engineer, he was on uh, here with me a few episodes back and he described how that worked. And it just it was very difficult to do that. And it was cramped quarters in there. So 
it, in many respects, it was like putting on a very sort of ambitious live theater show almost every day. And if a mishap happens, I think that's part of the spontaneity of the show that gave it its energy as well. I think that actually played into it, that energy. Yes. Yeah, so being on your, your tip of your toes, so to speak, of right. like, I want everything to go well. And if it does, I have to be ready uh, yeah. in case something goes awry, something falls apart, someone yeah. doesn't. You know, someone doesn't have the liner. Um, and there were days that Jonathan would go home so frustrated with yeah. himself. He was highly critical of mm-hmm. his work and he wanted to do the best he could, but in a very difficult situation. And mm-hmm. sometimes he forgot lines. Uh, another actor did things went wrong and he went home and was just so upset about it. Mm-hmm. And there were those occasional days where he was thrilled. He thought he really nailed his performance Everything went smoothly, whether it was uh, scenes that he had or even other actors, he would sit back and say, wow, that was really great. He loved working with Thayer David yeah. uh, and John Carlin. He particularly talked to, about the two of them frequently when he was at Duck Did, You know, he maintained a, a friendship with John Carlin over over the decades, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And sadly, Thayer passed away in the, in the 70s. So Yeah. yeah. So Thayer never... Um, was around for the conventions. And in fact, um, I was working with Jonathan when Grayson Hall passed away in the summer of 1985. And he, he said, oh, I wish Grayson could be here to go to some of these conventions. We'd have such fun together on oh, stage. Yeah. Um, and uh, yes, he, he felt very bad because of course they had many, many scenes together. Sure. Um, Jonathan was had the most episodes. I think Grayson was the second in terms of the cast. Um, but they had a lot of fun together. He would go to her house for dinner um, so that they could run lines after. So he would enjoy dinner with Sam and, and uh, mm-hmm. Grayson and their son um, and just to work on the lines wherever he could and be home. And he would tape record the lines of the other characters so he could practice, practice, practice as, as much as he could. And when he would go on publicity appearances on the weekends in which he was invited many places, he would enjoy them, but they were always that in his head. Oh, I don't, I've got to learn my lines. I got to be ready Monday morning. So he could never truly fully enjoy uh-huh. that trip because he knew he had to be on set with lines learned. Now, I want to ask you a question. I'm, I'm not sure if you know, but it, there, I've heard conflicting things. Now, of course, Jonathan also played Bramwell in the 1841 parallel time storyline on the show. In parallel time, Barnabas never became a vampire and he had a son named Bramwell and Jonathan played a different character. And I'd always heard, you know, all the other actors on the show were playing different characters. So he wanted the opportunity to do that. I would totally understand that. Now, often in articles, they say, well, Jonathan didn't want to play Barnabas anymore. So he played Bramwell. And I've heard it wasn't that he didn't want to play Barnabas anymore. It was that he didn't want to play the vampire, Barnabas as a vampire anymore. He would have continued playing Barnabas, like a cured version of Barnabas. Is that true? Do you know? Or So set the record straight. Mm-hmm. Dan Curtis went to the writers and said, write him another character. Oh, okay. Jonathan didn't walk into the room and say, write me another character again. This is a oh, man who respected okay. the writers. He did not do that. There um, is a story in the documentary that leads up to this, but basically, as the series was winding down, Dan walked in and told them to create another character, and they created Bramwell, Um, and uh, would have been Sam Hull, of course, Gordon Russell. Uh, So they, of course, created the wonderful triangle. Once again, you know, one of the most wonderful triangles in the gothic romance of dark shadows was the josette angelique barnabas story 
So they sort of created it again uh, with Bramwell, Catherine, and Morgan. Um, a great story, a gothic romance. The other comment that I sometimes hear is that, um, well, Dark Shadows ratings were going down, people won't work. We're, we're not watching anymore. Um, after the movie House of Dark Shadows came out, which as you recall, is quite bloody compared to the TV series. People said Dan really wanted to go full out, do the horror movie that he couldn't do on the television show. And the ratings actually dipped, perhaps because parents who now had to drive their son or daughter to the movie said, I'll stay in and watch it, where in the afternoon, busy working, they hadn't seen the show. So they suddenly said, is this what you're watching? No, you don't watch it anymore. Um, and the ratings dipped. Now, the interesting part to that is that with the Bramwell Catherine Morgan story, the ratings started to go back up. Mm -hmm. But the show had already been canceled. See, the show, um, although the word wasn't out to fans until maybe a month before, three, four weeks before it went off the air, the cast knew three months in advance that entire 1840, they knew the end was coming. That was the end, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. That would be the end. Um, so this, the, 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 the gothic romance was bringing probably particularly the moms at home to the show. Mm -hmm. and But it didn't matter that they were going up because the series had been canceled. And I think a big part of the series being canceled is my understanding, is that it was expensive. Dan was always trying to do more and more special effects, and that was taking production time. And they looked at, say, your average soap opera, One Life to Live at the time, the budget was less. And so I think the offer to Dan was, can you do it for less? And he said, no. And he, at that point, really wanted to go off and direct other projects. Yes. So I think he said, no, you know, let it go. And he then, of course, did. He did go on to do wonderful career on many, many television movies. And, of course, the very famous Winds of War and War Remembrance, where he won an Emmy Award. But oh. just to say that, so I just want to express that because... Uh, Okay. I know. Yeah, thank, thank you for clarifying that because that that is something you know that's often comes up in in discussions and fandom groups you know on Facebook and and things like that and it's sort of I think accepted uh, in fandom how that happened and I'm glad you clarified that so thank you. Yeah, for, yeah. For Jonathan that. really did he he did really enjoy playing the character and it was just the bite which as he said was out of four years, which what maybe about four minutes where he had to buy. And he said, again, it was because he was directed by you know, throwing your head back, opening <laughs> up really wide and you know, very, very dramatically going into the woman's neck. Sure. And he said, oh, you know, it just was so overdone, he felt. Right. But no, I mean, he, he enjoyed his job. He was thrilled to be working full time after working in the theater and you do a play, it gets bad reviews, you close, and then you go to find the next play and um, audition all over again. He never had steady work until he was on Dark Shadows, steady for four years. So that was quite a, a, a delight for him. And of course, he was, <laughs> and his mom felt very happy that he had the security. Yeah. And during the time that the show was on, that his character became a pop culture icon and continues to be to this day, you know, um, you bring a wealth of experience to this documentary. You've done all this amazing work uh, in television, won several Emmy Awards. Uh, what brought you to the documentary? Like, how did the Jonathan Frid documentary come to happen? Well, I'm very uh, grateful 
to Jim Pearson. Um, this actually began when in 2016, it was the 50th anniversary of Dark Shadows. And I believe I just ran into Jim Pearson at our favorite vegan restaurant. And he invited me um, if I would like to come to the 50th anniversary and speak about Jonathan. Well, I thought, yes, absolutely. That would be wonderful. Um, he had passed away in 2012. The last time I saw Jonathan was 2008. He had come to Los Angeles for a Dark Shadows fan convention. He had returned to the Dark Shadows Festival in 2007 in New York. He'd been away from them for 13 years because he had retired up to Canada. Um, but he got the special invitation to come back in 2007, which was the 40th anniversary of Barnabas coming on to Dark Shadows. So they did a great tribute to him. And he had a wonderful time coming back. The fan reception was just amazing, uh, stunned him. And so after that appearance in New York, then the next year in 2008, he came to Los Angeles. So I'd been talking to him. It was very funny. We had a conversation on the phone in which he mentioned um, that they were going to work on a new Dark Shadows movie. And he said, I know I should know this actor, but I don't. His name is Johnny Depp. And I said, yes, Jonathan, <laughs> if you were up on today's pop culture, you would know who Johnny Depp was. But uh, in any case, I made arrangements that I would come pick him up at the hotel and take him out to lunch, um, which I did. And we just had the best conversation just all down memory lane about the one man show and Clunes Associates. And at the end of the meal, he took my hand and he looked me right in the eye and said, Mary, thank you so much for all those wonderful years with my one man show. It's thanks oh, to you. It was so great. touching. Yeah. Um, little did I know that would be the last time I saw him oh, again uh, before he passed in 2012. Um, but um, going back, so 2016, um, I actually contacted Will McKinley, who had been there starting when that day that I met Jonathan and said, would you like to put together a presentation with me? And he said, sure. And I pulled out photos from my files and put together a little montage of On the Road with Jonathan Frid and showed that. And we talked about our experiences with Jonathan. It was great fun and the room filled with a thousand people. Just, just kind of quiet after I said, ready for questions. It's sort of a moment of like silence. And, uh, and then they just uh, really, really enjoyed the presentation. Um, Jim then called me and said uh, that he was working at Dan Curtis documentary and Jonathan sadly was no longer with us, but would I be willing to participate and sort of represent Jonathan in terms of, I would know what his answers would be to certain questions. So I said, sure. Uh, I never had the opportunity to meet Dan Curtis, but I certainly could answer questions <laughs> from Jonathan's point of view. So I, I did the interview and uh, then that came out in 2019. There was a screening in New York City in April 2019 and Jim asked me to attend. And after the screening, it was a panel, which I was on with Catherine Lee Scott, Laura Parker, Sharon Smith, Marie Wallace. And uh, we answered questions from the audience. Um, and then I was back in California and uh, as Jim lives here too, he called and said, yeah, let's go out to lunch. And he said that MPI is willing to give you a budget to do a documentary about Jonathan. And I'm like, that would be incredible. 
<laughs> uh, I would love to honor Jonathan. So it's sort of thanks to Jim contacting me, you know, sort of this circuitous route, how that came about. And then I really started going through my files um, to see, okay, well, what do I have? Where's my focus? Okay, obviously, uh, I need to interview a lot of people. I have to go to Canada. I have to go to New York. I, came, I actually went on a trip to Memphis to talk to an actor who would work with Jonathan because obviously uh, there were a lot of people that were were gone, had died, um, and including one of his closest friends who I had the opportunity to know died. So I started my work in May 2019, and he had died in February 2019. And another very, very good friend of his had died in October 2018. A woman in Canada I want to connect with had passed in 2018. So basically, I began to think about, okay, who, you know, what is the story I want to tell? I had actually a wonderful conversation with Laura Parker. I was um, sitting, um, it was a book signing for Catherine Lee Scott, and I, I was sitting next to Laura Parker. And as a, as a writer, I, I just sort of said, well, it's interesting with the documentary. And the key she, thing she said to me was, know the story you want to tell. And so at that point, I had done interviews, but now I begin to really think about that. And I said, what's the story? And I then once I got that and I sat with my editor, who's just incredible, Michael Giglio, who's actually from Woodbridge, New Jersey, who we worked long distance through the COVID. Um, I knew the story. So now it was shaping it. And what can I find that helps illustrate this point? Uh, maybe I need certain elements, which is how I ended up introducing the letters, which would help tell a story because the people that would have told it aren't here anymore. And it was just a joy. I mean, that's having such a wonderful time. I mean, the difficulty thing was editing because of course it, it was two and a half hours long when I first tried to assemble it and I had to, all right, well, I guess this can go. And Michael was enormously helpful because he was not familiar with Dark Shadows or Jonathan Frid, so he could have an objective eye. Uh, and that was tremendously helpful to me. And so I'm really looking forward to people seeing it and, and getting their reaction. Wonderful. I love in the press release for this, uh, there was a quote from him says, I chose to interview people who are close to him, ranging from his years at Yale to his work in regional theater to those involved in his one-man shows, which he toured across the country. In his later years, it's going to be... I I can tell just from the trailer, it's going to be a, a wonderful documentary. Now, of course, casual fans are going to, you know, see a lot of things they, they've never seen and clips and things. Now, what about hardcore fans of Dark Shadows? Are we going to see like clips and things like this that we haven't seen before, like from Jonathan Fritz collection or anything like that? Well, certainly for Dark Shadows fans, there's definitely a good part of Dark Shadows for sure. montages, um, uh, actors talking about working with him on Dark Shadows, but I did look at his whole life, 87 years of a life. Um, and so it's probably other than the first few minutes is completely Dark Shadows. Then we go away from it for a good mm -hmm. 25 minutes to cover a, a lot of ground um, yeah. before he got the role and then got a nice chunk on Dark Shadows. And I, in terms of the clips, I actually structured them in some ways, they're metaphors. Mm -hmm. uh, the choice of clips are very, very specific. Mm -hmm. To me, they help tell the story I'm trying to tell. Um, people may not see that at all. They'll just enjoy, oh, there's a great scene with their day that, oh, I remember that scene with, uh, with Gatlin Scott. But to me, the selections really have a very significant role in the telling of the story. Then, of course, his one-man shows I was very much a part of. And then his his move back home, 
Um, I visited him several times between 1995 and 1999, when I still was living in New York, it was easy to get up to Canada and visit. Um, my life changed dramatically. Um, when I, I had adopted my son, I moved to Los Angeles, started working in General Hospital, that I, I didn't get up there to see him. And the last time, as I mentioned, was seeing him when he came to Los Angeles. So when I went up to Canada, a part of talking to some of his family members were those those latter years, um, things that um, had happened. Right. But he was a man whose heart was in the theater. He he had a passion for acting and it was with him for his entire life. Now, Mary, was there anything you discovered uh, during the making of your documentary and your research about Jonathan's family? When I went to Hamilton, I did learn a number of things about his family that I didn't know. He had two brothers. Uh, they were all very unique, different personalities, different interests. His older brother, Doug, was a bit of a boastful person, I was told, kind of full of himself. He left Hamilton to operate a ski and snowboard resort. Uh, his middle brother, Ken, uh, was very quiet, uh, but a very hard worker. And he took over the Ford Construction Company with his father's blessing and ran it until um, his unexpected death of a heart attack in 1986. He was only 65. Uh, Jonathan had no interest in the construction company. At age 16, he just fell in love in, with acting when he did his uh, play, first play in his prep school, and it became the focus of his life. Um, he was a great storyteller. Everybody would talk about how he could engage in conversation easily, but he also was a great listener. So while engaging with someone, he was very curious about that person and would want to hear their life story. He really did care about other people, and he was curious about a person he would meet and who, who they were. So they were all quite different. They're all about three years apart in age. Um, his parents were, were quite exceptional. Um, his father, H.P. Frid was well, well respected in the community. In 1951, he received a Citizen of the Year Award. He was known as a caring boss. If an employee was in you know, financial trouble and needed an advance, he would help the person out. Um, he would have holiday parties uh, for his employees. And he also unionized um, when the request came and to protect his uh, employees. And he did that. And not all companies at the time followed suit. Uh, he was um, just a very kind hearted person and uh, on the quiet side from what I learned from people who knew him up there. His wife, Flora, uh, she loves parties. <laughs> she enjoyed throwing galas for his clients. It was her way, she said, to help support his company by having the, these different events for people, uh, both at their home and at her her parents' uh, house at Waterdown. Like she would have summer tea parties, um, and then um, also uh, both parents were very involved in the theater, which was surprising to learn that when Jonathan, um, as a young man of seventeen started um, becoming involved with the Players Guild Theater, which actually was located down the street from their home on Queen Street. 
The mother uh, went on to be in charge of obviously a literary committee uh, to choose plays. Um, the father uh, helped um, when the, the theater company was in different spaces and then uh, someone donated a 150 year old house to the theater company, um, but it didn't have a stage in it. And HP had this construction company build a stage inside this house so they would actually have a performance space. So that all that history was just amazing to me that his parents, I knew they had been supportive of him wanting to be an actor, but I didn't realize how very involved they became in helping with his interest and in sort of helping showing him their support by becoming involved at the Players Theatre Guild. Um, also, there was an annual uh, event um, in Ontario. There was an arts organization and they would have regional festivals at little theaters. And then each year have a big event called the Dominion Drama Festival, which still happens today. Competition, basically. So the regional theaters, whether in London, Ontario or Hamilton, the, there'd be regional festivals. And then there was one big festival each year. And in 1954, it was actually in Hamilton and Jonathan's father, H.P., volunteered to be the festival committee person. You know, here's a man who, who had a very, very busy life, but he actually took this on because he knew it was so exciting for his son, John, to be in a production that was a part of this festival. And the mother was in charge of hospitality committee. So she was throwing soirees because people would come from all over Ontario, um, political types, as well as people then associated with the arts to this event. It was a week long event. And so um, his mother was having all types of uh, tea parties, dinners, luncheons for these people, as well as each night would be a presentation of one of these plays. And then there would be at the end of the week awards given. So I was just really delighted to hear these stories about his parents and, and how much they gave back to the community um, in many, many ways um, that, you know, they were very involved in uh, helping with green spaces to beautify the city of Hamilton and uh, became involved in supporting the creation of the Royal Botanical Gardens, which actually the idea came from a gentleman named Tom McQuesten. And um, Mr. Frid was completely supportive of his work. Uh, Flora was a great gardener um, actually, a wonderful name that she had, Flora, um, because she loved, loved gardening and had just incredible gardens, uh, particularly in Waterdown, which had been, again, her parents' estate where um, John and his brothers would spend the summer. She would have these beautiful, beautiful gardens. And of course, people who worked at the construction company would come over and help with it. But it was just something that uh, was also kind of co a constant in Jonathan's life. He himself loved gardening. And in New York City, on his penthouse apartment, he set up a beautiful garden when he bought his home in Ancaster. Again, in his yard, created a beautiful garden. Wonderful. So it was really quite a wonderful family. Now, was Players Guild before or after Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts and Yale Drama? Well, played, uh, play, Players Guild, he oh. first worked with when he was a young okay. man, 17, 18. And then while he was okay. at McMaster University, he would still do plays at the Players Guild. But yes, after McMaster University, he went to London yeah. uh, at the Royal Academy. And um, he actually didn't complete his course of study. Yes. It was a two-year program. He did a year. And then... 
perhaps like other young people, I want to get out and start acting. Um, and he was involved in some companies in Cornwall and Kent, these smaller places in England. But in fact, I called the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts and they looked up his record and it was very complimentary from his, particularly his speech and diction teachers. Oh, great. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but I think his father was a little disappointed that he hadn't completed the program. He said, you know, you get sent over the, the program. Why are you doing the plays? <laughs> you come back here if you want to do plays. So in fact, he came back and he did perform um, in Toronto uh, with the Jupiter Theater. But then he would come down to Hamilton, which was about an hour away. And he continued to do productions with the Players Guild, including this production, uh, which then took him to the Dominion Drama Festival. And I talk about that in, in the documentary. Mm-hmm. But um, I mean, certainly his parents were quite exceptional people. I think uh, he really came from the the generosity of a kind spirit that he had, I think came through his parents. Did, were, were there any theater roles? Like he, he always spoke fondly of Richard III. No, you could tell that was one of his favorite roles. Were there any uh, theater roles that he wanted to play that he didn't get the opportunity to? I think he would have. He did Richard III in 1965. And I think he would have liked to have done that again on the stage. But I think he felt by the time he was in his 60s um, that he was probably too old for it. But of course, he could do it in his Reader's Theater presentations. Yeah. And then also on his website in his, his, his latter years, he loved mm-hmm. going on the computer and he would do excerpts from Richard. Yes, JonathanFred.com. Um, I remember going to, to his website and listening to, and he had a message board where he would respond to fan questions and things. That was really cool that he he had that web presence, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, or, but, I mean, he wasn't, I was going to say, I mean, he wasn't a man who believed in regret. He said, mm-hmm. you make your choices and you move forward. Don't, yeah. don't dwell on the, the past. And mm-hmm. um, so that I admired that about him. And uh, Dark Shadows didn't air. I mean, it, like if you were on the border of the U.S. and Canada, like you could catch it. But I, I further up in Canada, I don't I don't think Dark Shadows. There are as many places where you could watch Dark Shadows up there until, you know, the dawn of syndication and then home, home video, of course, and people had more access to it. Um Right. His mother, you're right. His mother, um, in order to see it one time, she said, I really want to see it. Um, I think it was Ken, but somebody drove her to Buffalo <laughs> and set up a hotel room where she could stay and like watch an episode. No kidding. Oh, that's <laughs> yeah. great. Oh, uh, <laughs> what did she think of it? Uh, um, I think she was kind of baffled, <laughs> um, but she, um, she would love again. And, and, and when she was alive, cause she lived till she was 98, she passed away in 1987. So she sadly, her son Ken died before she did, but she loved his reader's theater. She, he would go up and read pieces to her and oh, they, wow. you know, 85, 86. And she thoroughly enjoyed that. I mean, she was when he was in New York doing Off-Broadway and she would come down and try to see him in a play or if regional theater out of state, she would try to do that. Um, mm-hmm. So she was always really wanting to see her, her son um, sure. in plays. Now, his father quite sadly died before Dark Shadows. Oh. He died in September, 1966. So he never saw what his son achieved. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jonathan, as I mentioned, he really admired and loved his father. And I, I think there was a, a deep part of him that you know, missed that his dad didn't see that. Um, but also the story about Jonathan going to teach and then he got the job for Dark Shadows. 
is um, this is one of the things that I learned that as any father does, you want to make sure your child, your son, your daughter has some security. And in as much as he knew his son, John, had a passion for acting, it, it's a very <laughs> unstable field, uh, bouts of unemployment. And so he had said, well, you know, why don't you teach what you love? Why don't you become a teacher or perhaps run a theater company? And that was always in the back of Jonathan's mind. And Jonathan in the summer of 66 had his terrific summer at the Old Globe Theater in San Diego um, and was still there. The season ended and he was staying there a few weeks and uh, his father died. And so when he came back and started to think about his future, he actually said, maybe I should teach. And he actually had an interview with somebody there, but they said, look, we already have everybody for this year, but why don't you apply next year? Because you've got a master's degree from Yale, you've been to Royal Academy, we'd love to have you. So he then took a national tour of Hostile Witness that kept him on the road and kept him busy. And then the famous story, he'd finished that tour, was coming back to his New York apartment with his bags in hand. And his plan was to be there for a few weeks and then go to San Diego, where he was going to be interviewed for teaching positions. Um, and maybe he'd also work at the Old Globe again, which he loved. Uh, the phone rang. It was his agent saying, I want you to go to this audition for the soap opera Dark Shadows. It's the role of a vampire. And he said... Well, um, I really was getting ready to leave San Diego. And the agent said, well, look, it's just for 13 weeks. <laughs> get some money in your pocket and then you can make your move. Yeah. So he went and and it, it, he actually it was more of a meeting. You know, he met with the producer and a couple of the writers and uh, uh, then got called and was offered the part. And the rest is history, as they say. Yeah. But that's really, I think shows how Jonathan did feel a deep love for his father and his father wanting to have security, that that's what he was really going to do was mm -hmm. teach. But as he said, the will of a wisp, one little thing can change the focus of your whole life. It's really and remarkable. It really is. Yeah. Um, closing thoughts. What would you like fans, uh, you know, as we're uh, on the cusp of, of the release of this documentary, what would you like fans to know about the documentary and also how can we get it? Uh, where What formats will it be available in? Well, as Jonathan used to say, I want people to see me as more than just Barnabas. So I really tried to show all aspects of Jonathan as the man he was. I hope people will come away after viewing with a feeling of seeing the kindness, generosity of this man um, and the wonderful legacy that he leaves, which I show at the end of the documentary. Um, it's going to be available. Well, right now, actually, there's pre-orders for DVD and Blu-ray on Amazon, but Amazon Prime Video will actually not be showing it. I, I had found out this morning mm. um, that they've changed some of their policy re regarding nonfiction content on their digital video platform. So instead, Apple TV. So everybody plan to rent or purchase from Apple TV. Um, it will also be on Google Play, Microsoft Movies and TVs, Sling TV for rental only, Vimeo On Demand, and Voodoo Fandango. But um, the top of them probably, I would say, Apple TV. Tuesday, October 5th is when it will be released on those platforms. Wonderful. And I actually meant to mention uh, one of the other 
aspects of the documentary is a wonderful Scottish actor, Ian Buchanan, mm -hmm. uh, is the voice of Jonathan Frid for oh. some of his personal letters, which I use in the documentary. Ian did the recording during COVID at a studio that I could not be present because of COVID. Oh. They said the talent is in the studio. Nobody else can be except the technician. You as the producer will be home and you'll have an audio link. So I could hear him. He could hear me. I could give him notes. So we actually didn't actually see each other wow. uh, until recently, you know, waiting for uh, COVID to go away, which of course, as we know, it didn't go away, um, but we finally did to get together. And um, it was just wonderful to have Ian as a part of this. Mary, thank you so much for joining me today and for reminiscing about Jonathan and for uh, sharing your insights and for talking about your experience with the documentary and your experience uh, in the industry. It really uh, means a lot to me and to uh, our listeners, I think will really enjoy hearing from you. Uh, so thank you. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure to be with you and talking about uh, this, this wonderful documentary that I can't <laughs> wait for people to see and, and give me their reactions to. Folks, make sure you check this out. Ida's called Dark Shadows and Beyond, the Jonathan Frid story, available October 5th, 2021. It is available for, if you want it on Blu-ray or DVD, I ordered my Blu-ray. I'm still kind of old school. I, I still use the physical media, but I did buy a uh, pre-order my Blu-ray. I can't wait to watch it. Just a quick addendum here. This just came in after we recorded this episode from the legendary Shadowgram newsletter, which has been going since the 70s and exists now in digital form. This just came out on Sunday, October 3rd at 4 p.m. Pacific time. 8 p.m. Central Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, a special one-hour free online preview of the Dark Shadows and Beyond documentary devoted to Jonathan Frid will take place live on the MPI Media Group YouTube channel with original Dark Shadows actors Lara Parker, David Selby, James Storm, and Marie Wallace, along with documentary producer-director Mary O'Leary, who you just heard in this podcast, and journalist host Mark Dewitziak. The event will be screened at www.youtube.com forward slash MPI Media Group, and I will put a link to that YouTube channel in the show notes on the website and also in the YouTube version of this podcast's description. You can catch Terror at Collinwood wherever you listen to your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, etc. Be sure to subscribe. If you listen to the show on YouTube, or even if you listen to it on one of the podcast apps, be sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel. I sometimes put some exclusive content there as well. So there's some fun stuff going on there too. And for as long as they lived, the dark shadows never truly dissipated, for there will always be terror. At Collinwood. Terror at Collinwood is a Penny Dreadful production.